This week on the show, we have the FreeBSD Foundation September update for you. Uh, we cover a tiny C library for programming Unix daemons. Uh, we have a bunch of EuroBSDCon trip reports from various people. We also cover GhostBSD tested on real hardware and a BSD authentication module for duress in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 269, Tiny Daemon Lip, recorded for the 24th of October 2018. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jew. And we have a great episode prepared for you this week. And uh, we start off with headlines. Uh, the September FreeBSD Foundation update letter, we haven't uh, covered much, so it's time for that now. Might as well put up my foundation hat here. Um, starting off with the message from the executive director, Deb Goodkin, uh, reading, Dear FreeBSD community member, it's hard to believe that September is over. The foundation team had a busy month promoting the FreeBSD operating system all over the globe, bug fixing in preparation for 12.0, and setting plans in motion to kick off our fourth quarter fundraising and advocacy efforts. Take a minute to see what we've been up to. That's what we're going to do here. And please consider making a donation to help us continue our efforts supporting FreeBSD. Because we can't do this without you and your support. All right. Yeah. Alan, get into the uh, developer projects uh, or yeah. development project update. So uh, here's an update from uh, some of the staff at the foundation who are working on things. Uh, in preparation for the release of FreeBSD 12, uh, they've been working on investigating and fixing a backlog of kernel bug reports. Of course, this kind of work is never finished, and we will continue to make progress even after the release. Um, but in the past couple of months, I have fixed uh, a combination of long-standing issues and recent regressions. Of note is a pair of Unix domain socket bugs, which have been uh, affecting various applications for years. In particular, uh, the one was affecting Chromium tabs uh, would cause them frequently to hang unless the workaround was manually applied to the system. Uh, and the bug... Uh, had to actually started to affect recent versions of Firefox as well. So fixing these issues gave me an opportunity to revisit and extend our regression test suite uh, for the Unix sockets layer, um, and while in turn resulted in some related bugs being identified and fixed as well. Of late, I've also been investigating reports of issues with ZFS, in particular those reported uh, on FreeBSD 11.2, a number of regressions, including a kernel memory leak and issues uh, with ARC reclamation have been fixed uh, for 12.0. Investigations of other reports are ongoing. Uh, so these are being investigated by Mark Johnson, uh, but uh, myself and Alexander Moten have also been investigating uh, similar reports affecting 11.2 and 12. Um, I committed, I think, four fixes in the last couple days. Um, uh, and... Alexander has half of uh, the fixes for uh, zpool remove committed, and uh, he, he and I, I think, have identified the problem uh, for a second bug as well. Oh, uh, excellent. So yes, uh, there will be a large number of improvements being uh, made at the last minute here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, all those fixes are, are good for a good purpose because then 12 is uh, reliable and uh, stable and with all these new features coming in. Yeah, so uh, the one that I started trying to deal with was a 
uh, a resource deadlock uh, when you're running low on vnodes and deleting files and doing whatever buildbot does in the background, which I think is closing uh, 65,000 file descriptors or something, um, resulting in uh, this resource deadlock as you're trying to get information about a specific vnode while another process is trying to free that vnode uh, and causing this deadlock. Uh, so I, uh, that one was brought up to me in particular. People came up to me at EuroBSDCon or like, can you help us figure out what's going on here? Uh, <laughs> and so I figured it out and I uh, got it fixed. Uh, and so that started Correct. this tour and then I've been digging into a couple of other related ones uh, and getting all that fixed. Wonderful. Anyway, uh, continuing with uh, Mark's right up here. Uh, those who closely follow FreeBSD Current know that some exciting work to improve memory usage on NUMA systems is now enabled by default, uh, as is usual in the case when new code is deployed uh, in a diverse array of systems and workloads. A number of problems have since been identified. We're working on resolving them as soon as possible to ensure the quality of the release. So in particular, this lets um, systems that have multiple separate uh, memory domains Usually when you have multiple sockets or if you have one of these newer AMD systems where your CPU is actually just like four CPUs welded together, uh, that's usually four separate memory domains. And depending which set of cores you're running on, uh, it can be faster to access memory that's directly attached rather than having to go uh, across the interconnect and access RAM that's attached to a different CPU. Uh, so the kernel knowing about this allows it to help decide where to pick uh, where to allocate memory from but it can also lead to well i've used up all the memory that's attached to this cpu uh, and now i need to make sure that we do still allocate memory from the other cpu and so on mm, yeah yep yeah, uh, so going forward mark says i'm passionate about maintaining freebsd stability and dependability as it continues to expand and grow new features and i'm grateful to the freebsd foundation for sponsoring this work we depend on users to report problems uh to the mailing list and via the bug tracker. So please keep running uh, the 12 release candidates uh, and reporting bugs. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, I know that too often uh, bug reports go into Bugzilla and then just nothing happens for years. Uh, but a lot of them are actually getting fixed. Uh, and so if you're having a problem, do make sure you report it there. Uh, and, you know, Maybe it helps if you know somebody to get them to look at it. Uh, but, you know, not reporting the bug means it's definitely not going to get fixed. Yeah, it's so, un yeah, please unlikely. keep submitting to Bugzilla. Uh, it definitely increases the chance that it'll get solved. Mm. Yep. Okay, we continue with the fundraising update. Uh, so Deb writes here in this uh, section of the... Um, newsletter is that it's officially fall here at the foundation headquarters and we're heading full steam into our final fundraising campaign of the year uh, we couldn't even have begun to reach our fundraising goal of 1.25 million dollars 
without the support from the companies who have partnered with us this year, so thank you to Verisign for becoming a silver sponsor. They now join the growing list of companies like uh, Ziplink, NetApp, Microsoft, Tarsnap, VMware, and NeoSmart Technologies that are stepping up and showing their commitment to FreeBSD. So these are um, our silver uh, partners here. That we uh, So we introduced the partner program last year, and it's been quite successful so far because uh, companies see that they have... Um, long-term uh, way of getting something out of this relationship, be it uh, that they can send uh, people to dev summits or uh, get into the community a little bit better than uh, like coming around the other way. So funding from commercial users like these and individual users, don't forget those, uh, like yourself, help us continue to uh, support our supporting uh, areas that are critical of the FreeBSD uh, development, such as like operating system improvements. We need to, um, you know, we're providing certain uh, staff to immediately respond to urgent problems uh, and implement new features and functionality, allowing us for um, like adding innovation and stability you've come on uh, to rely on. Yeah, so the donations are why uh, Kib has been able to work on all the Spectre meltdown mitigations right away when they came up, or that Mark and Ed have been available to work on all the the regressions and, and bug reports uh, ahead of the 12.0 release. Yep. That also brings us into the security, uh, providing engineering resources to bolster the capacity and responsiveness of the security team, providing your users with peace of mind when security issues arise so that these issues are being worked on and that they are, uh, you know, uh, released in a timely manner and that we have patches available to um, to patch the systems and make them secure again in, in those um then there's release engineering. We continue to provide a full-time release engineer, resulting in a timely and reliable release you can plan around, or at least we try to. <laughs> uh, there's quality assurance that we do. We are improving and increasing test coverage. Uh, so continuous integration is a big thing. And automated testing with a full-time software engineer that we now have to ensure that you release the highest quality, secure, and reliable operating system. So that's been... Uh, still being worked on, but it already had some interesting uh, results, and we keep improving on that and make it um, better for developers and also um, for users to see what's um, what kind of regressions there are or that the quality is actually increasing. There's also the new user experience. So we improved the process of, and documentation for getting new people involved with FreeBSD uh, and supporting those people as they become integrated into the FreeBSD community, providing the resources you may need to get new folks up to speed. So these could be uh, flyers or getting started guides or pretty much anything that you would need to get you know, your, your feet wet. That also ties into training a little bit. So that's the next part here. Supporting more FreeBSD training for undergraduates, graduates, and postgraduates. So because these are the people that are, you know, growing up in into the, the IT world and we might as well teach them a little bit about FreeBSD and then we have more sustained uh, developers coming in too because they're already familiar with the system. So growing the community means reaching people and catching their interest in system software as early as possible and providing you with a bigger pool of candidates with the FreeBSD skills you're looking for. And that also interests companies because they, they need to hire these people. And uh, last but not least, face-to-face -face opportunities. We are facilitating collaboration among members of the community and building connections throughout the industry to support a healthy and growing ecosystem and make it easier for you to find resources when questions emerge. 
So again, we can continue the work above if we meet our goal this year. And for a donation, could be any size, could be a couple of dollars, could be a bigger donation, as much as you can have or that you can spend. Um, we're appreciate, we'll appreciate that donation and it helps us, you know, um, reach these goals or sustain them. Okay, um, next up is the release engineering update. Yeah, uh, so the release engineering team continues working on the upcoming 12.0 release. At present, the 12.0 schedule has been adjusted uh, to allow for necessary work in progress to be completed. Of note, uh, one of the big ones was getting uh, OpenSSL in the base system updated from 1.0.2, which goes end of life in about 14 months, uh, to 1.1.1, which is the long-term support release that uh, will allow us to keep the same version, uh, major version of uh, ABI of OpenSSL uh, for the five-year lifetime of the 12.0 branch. Uh, and this is to in, avoid, uh, in order to avoid breaking the ABI of the established stable branch down the road when 102 goes out of support. Also, uh, due to the level of non-trivial intrusiveness uh, that has already been discovered and addressed in the project branch for that uh, work, it is possible uh, the schedule might have to be adjusted uh, by another week to allow time for things to settle down. Uh, in particular, OpenSSL 1.1 also changed uh, a bunch of the ABIs and stuff. So the way you actually use OpenSSL in each application changed, uh, which is causing a bit more fallout than expected. Um, but uh, there's a release schedule up on the website, and that's updated as we go. Uh, and it is basically uh, the current status, uh, which should see the first beta uh, shipping uh, next week uh, if things can manage to stabilize. If all goes well, yeah. Yep. Uh, next up, we have a trip report from Marie-Helen Cavano. Uh, sorry, I butchered that. Anyway, um, so... Uh, first, she'd like to start by thanking the FreeBSD Foundation for sponsoring her trip to BSD Cambridge. Uh, I wouldn't have managed to attend otherwise. Uh, I've used FreeBSD in both personal and professional developments, or sorry, deployments, uh, since about the year 2000. And over the last few years, I've uh, got more involved with development and documentation. So, talking about the trip, uh, she managed to arrive at Gatwick in London at midnight on uh, Monday, August 13th, and take the train to Cambridge and decided to do some tourist activities. And then as uh, she was walking from the train station to Churchill College, uh, she said she ran into Alan outside the hotel. Although, actually, I think <laughs> I caught up to her rather than... <laughs> she was yeah. ahead of me. Um, anyway, I saw somebody ahead of me with luggage who resembled somebody I knew, so I sent them a text message. And suddenly... You see them stop, pull out the phone, look at it, turn around, and wave. <laughs> anyway, um, Monday was mostly spent settling in, recouping from travel, and hanging out with uh, a bunch of us. I think uh, myself, Brad, Will, Andy, uh, Ed, and uh, Marie went up for dinner. Uh, anyway, that's just the start of the trip report. If you want to read the rest, there's a link. Uh, it mm -hmm. gets into all the interesting things that actually happened at the Developer Summit. It's always interesting to see somebody else's perspective, uh, even a conference I've been to, actually just mm. seeing what other people did while they were there and which parts they found the most interesting or, or that they remembered the most. Um, yeah. 
when I had my Google Summer of Code student come to BSD Cam in 2017, uh, I was very interested in just the amount of stuff that I was in the room for that I kind of had had slipped my mind mostly because not enough sleep, so not implanting in my brain correctly. But uh, I was like, how did you keep such detailed notes of everything that happened? I wish I could do that. Yeah, that's that's good to see uh, as the same conference from different perspective and the the common mm-hmm. things you like and the sessions you couldn't go to and things like that. Yeah, and and that's why I really like when we also get the uh, the trip reports from people who's, who's their first conference or even just when they're relatively new to conferencing. Uh, getting their trip reports I always find very enlightening. Uh, and in addition to people who have never gone helps them get excited. I know a number of people whose first conferences happened at some point this year said it was because of the uh, issues or uh, because of the trip reports we've already talked about. Um, mm-hmm. and hopefully we see even more. Yeah, they've been in similar situations. It's their first time, but uh, for everyone, it's it's a very interesting and unique experience. All right, um, let's continue with the continuous integration update. So um, the FreeBSD Foundation has sponsored the development of the project's continuous integration system, which is available at ci.freebsd.org, over HTTPS, of course, uh, since June, that is. And over the summer, uh, we improved both the software and hardware infrastructure, so we got a bunch of beefy new machines, and also added some new jobs for extending the test coverage of the current and stable branches. Uh, So the following are some highlights here. So we have new hardware. The foundation purchased four new machines for scaling up the computation power for the various test jobs. Uh, So with these newer, faster machines, uh, they substantially speed up the time it takes to test AMD64 builds so that uh, failing changes can be identified more quickly. And in August as well, we received a donation of two Pine A64 LTS boards from pine64.org. Thanks for that. Um, Uh, Which will be put... For a second. Um, The fact that they have... LTS, which instead of long-term support means long-term supply, versions of these ARM boards is very interesting. One of the problems with a lot of boards, even you know what we've talked about trying to standardize on a specific model of laptop for BSD and so on, and the problem being that as manufacturing goes on, they'll be like, oh, we, can, we can't get this chip, we'll have to use this chip, or oh, this one's 30 cents cheaper now, let's use that for the next 100,000 units. Yeah. Um, and you end up with slightly different hardware. Uh, so, or just... You can't get the old one. Uh, now, enough companies are basing products on the, the Pine A64 that have created this long-term supply version where they're guaranteeing that it'll be exactly that configuration and you'll be able to continue to buy them for years to come. Uh, and it's interesting to see LTS hardware. Yeah, that's uh, yeah good to have if you wanted to build, like Alan said, a long-term product. And uh, we also have news for the CI staging environment. So we used hardware from a previous generation CI system to build a staging environment for the CI infrastructure. Uh, that is available at ci-dev.freebsd.org. And it executes the configurations and scripts from the staging branch of the FreeBSD CI repo and the development feature branches. And we also use it to experiment with the new version of the Jenkins server and plugins. And having a staging environment avoids affecting the production CI environment, so reducing the downtime. 
So this one is for developers. Mail notifications. In July, we turned on failure notification for all the kernel and world build jobs, uh, meaning that committers will receive email containing the build information and failure logs to inform them of possible problems with the modifications on certain architectures. Yes, yes, you broke that other architecture over there. Well, uh, uh, it's mostly... <laughs> It doesn't build every single commit, so it builds, you know, when it's finished building, it builds after the next commit, basically. Uh, so there could be a window. So it's like, you're one of the six people that has touched this since when it went from working to not working. So it doesn't necessarily mean you're the one that broke it, but, uh, the you know, the five most likely suspects uh, will it's get a chance, yeah. by the uh, CI police. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, the, so currently the mail is sent only to the individual uh, committers, but with help from the postmaster team, we have created a dev-ci mailing list and will soon be also sending notifications there so that people can pick it up. Um, there's a new test job, uh, so that was added in August. Uh, they updated the embedded script of the virtual machine image. So originally, it only executed predefined tests, but now this behavior can be modified by the data on the attached disk. And this mechanism is used for adding new ZFS test jobs. Um, we're also working on analyzing and fixing the falling and skip test cases. So this is work ongoing. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, in the work in progress here in August and September, we had two developer summits, one in Cambridge and one in Bucharest, Romania. And in these meetings, uh, Liwen uh, discussed running special tests, run a, such as Z-Test, uh, which needs a longer runtime. And they also planned the networking test for TCP IP. Yeah. Uh, right. There's also a reminder at the bottom here that you should submit your work. The call for papers for uh, Scale 17 and FOSDEM 19 are coming up soon. So uh, if you'd like to talk about FreeBSD at scale, uh, the deadline is October 31st. Uh, and if you'd like to talk in the main track about FreeBSD at FOSDEM, uh, the first deadline is tomorrow. Uh, so it's probably too late for that. Uh, but the final deadline is November 3rd. Oh, that's still a little uh, time. And then I think after that, we will have the call for papers for the dev room, uh, which is so... Uh, the main track of FOSDEM is like a giant stadium seating thing that will be over a thousand people in the room listening to you talk. <laughs> uh, the dev room is a small room with like, I think it's like a hundred people. Is the not, most yeah, not that and many. Yeah. Oftentimes it's not necessarily full. Uh, but the dev room is like, this room will just be talks about FreeBSD for the whole day. Some of them might only be 20 minutes. Uh, we'll have... Uh, a much more flexible schedule. Basically, the the FreeBSD project got the room, and we will just fill it with as much stuff as we can. Um, whereas the the main stage is uh, a bit different. But we'd like to uh, you know cover the conference in FreeBSD on both stages. <laughs> yeah. So from different angles, we're coming, and it's not just FreeBSD. The dev room could also have um, OpenBSD people, NetBSD talks, and they had in the past. So mm -hmm. it's a good way of catching up what they've been doing and what's going uh, to happen in the BSDs in the coming right. Yes, sorry, months, uh, weeks. The dev room is uh, all the BSDs. Um, also, uh, one of the nice things about FOSDEM is because it's the free and open source developers European meeting. There are people from like every project there. Uh, so if you say work on graphics and stuff and, and X stuff in FreeBSD and would like to be able to talk in person to like 20 KDE developers, there's a KDE <laughs> dev room down the hall from us. Uh, 
there's a VS, VLC dev room. There's an SQL dev room. There's, there's Postgres, rooms for yeah. like every major open source product you ever heard of has people there, uh, and it's a great way to uh, talk to them and make sure that hey, you're, we use your software on FreeBSD. Could you help us make sure you don't just fill it with Linuxisms? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things like that. Yeah, so that's a good way to start the year with uh, open source, and uh, yeah, we'll be there and. Uh, yeah, we'll keep you updated. Yeah, and uh, definitely check out the full um, newsletter from the FreeBSD Foundation, some of the stuff we just uh, scratched the surface. And uh, yeah, make sure that you donate if you have a little bit of money left. Yep. So next up, we have a story about Daemonize, uh, a tiny C library for programming Unix daemons. Ah, yes. Uh, whatever you say, writing System 5-style init daemons is hard. Uh, one has to follow many rules to make daemon processes behave correctly uh, on diverse Unix flavors. Moreover, debugging such code might be somewhat tricky. On the other hand, the process of daemon initializing is rigid and well-defined, so the corresponding code has been written and debugged once uh, and can just be reused countless times. Uh, developers of BSD Unix uh, were very aware of this, so uh, there's a C function called daemon uh, that's been available since 4.4 BSD, which is older than most of us. Um, <laughs> the function, although not standard, is present in most Unixes. Uh, unfortunately, it does not follow all the required steps uh, to reliably run a process in the background on systems that follow the system V semantics, uh, like Linux. Um, the details are available on the corresponding Linux man page. The main problem uh, here, as they understand it, is that uh, the daemon uh, call does not use the double forking technique to avoid the situation uh, when zombie processes appear. Uh, so whenever I encounter a problem like this, I know uh, it's time to write a tiny C library. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is exactly what the daemonize tool is. It was uh, up here on GitHub. The library consists of only two files, uh, which are meant to be integrated into your source tree. So you embed this into your program. Uh, recently, I have updated the library and realized that it would be good to describe how to use it on the website. For this reason, I want to make a Windows service, uh, and they have battle-tested template code uh, for doing just that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, looking at the System 5 daemon initialization process, uh, to make uh, discussions clear, uh, we shall quote the steps which have uh, had to be performed during a daemon initialization according to the daemon man page on Linux. Um, I do it to demonstrate uh, that this task is trickier than one might expect. So here we go. First, close all open file descriptors except for standard in, standard out, and standard error, I, uh, the first three file descriptors. This ensures that no accidentally passed file descriptors stay around in the daemon process. On Linux, this is best implemented by iterating over slash proc slash self slash fd to find a list of all open file descriptors for your process. Uh, then you want to reset all signal handlers to be their default. Uh, this is best done by iterating through the available signals uh, up to the limit of underscore nsig, uh, which is number of signals, and resetting them to sig default. And then you reset the signal mask. And then you want to sanitize the environment block, removing and resetting all the environment variables that might negatively impact the daemon once you start running it. Then we call fork to create a background process. In that child, we called set 
uh, SID to attach from the terminal and create an independent session. Then in that child, we call fork again uh, to ensure that the daemon can never reacquire the terminal again. Then we call exit in the first child so that only the second child, the actual daemon process, stays around. This ensures that the daemon process is reparented to init or PID1 uh, as all daemon should be. Then in your daemon process, you want to connect dev null to standard input, output, and standard error. Uh, and then in the daemon process, reset the umask to zero so it goes back to being the default uh, so that when you open files, you don't inherit a umask from before. Uh, then uh, in the daemon process, you want to change the current directory to slash in order to avoid randomly writing files into some other directory uh, or uh, blocking a mount point uh, so that somebody couldn't unmount a file system because the daemon happened to have been started from there. Hmm. Uh, in the daemon process, you want to write the daemon's pid. So you get the pid and write it out to a file like far run foobar.pid or whatever. Um, to ensure that the daemon cannot be started more than once, uh, this must be implemented in race-free fashion so that the the PID file is only updated when it's been verified uh, that it's the same PID. Um, and then in the daemon process, you want to drop any privileges if possible, uh, you know, enter capsicum or use pledge or whatever. Um, and then from that daemon process, notify the original process uh, that started this initialization that is complete. You can now... Uh, this can be implemented via an unnamed pipe or a similar communication channel uh, that is created before you call the first fork and hence available in both the original and the daemon process. Because So when you start the first program and you fork, all the open file descriptors are copied and then you fork again and it'll copy it. So even though you've closed the original program, you have this shared inherited file descriptor between the two. Then finally, uh, call exit in the original process. This process uh, that invoked the daemon must now be able to rely on this exit happening after initialization is complete and all external communication channels are established and accessible. Uh, so it says the discuss library does uh, most of the above mentioned initialization steps for you as it became immediately evident that implementation details of some of these are heavily dependent on the internal logic of your application. Uh, so it couldn't do everything for you. But uh, in general, you call daemonize with some flags like default or do not close existing file descriptors or keep the signal handlers or don't reset the umask or don't chter. Uh, and then you call run daemon and tell it what program to launch, basically. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. uh, they also have some example code on how to do this. Oh, yeah. So you can see there's a lot of things that need to be first reset or initialized. Um, so that's uh, important because the daemon is not the only daemon running on the system and uh, keeping a uh, tight environment before and after the daemon is important. Right. Well, in particular, when it's started by a user, you don't want to inherit a bunch of weird things from their environment like their username or their SSH <laughs> agent uh, socket or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. So in Better conclusion, uh, the objective of the library is to hide all the tricky programming uh, of a daemon from you so you can focus on your application. Uh, if you are not only interested in writing a daemon, but want to make yourself familiar with the techniques that are used, uh, go ahead and look at the source code for the library. Moreover, I would advise anyone who's starting development in Unix uh, to do that because it shows many of the intricacies of programming on uh, across platforms and so on. Mm -hmm. Also, like uh, logging errors and not just printing them out on the screen, uh, but writing 
to system log and uh, other ways to you know find proper error codes or emit proper error codes to uh, make sure that other programs can you know know what what's happening in your little little daemon very nice So, time for news roundup this week. We have the EuroBSDCon 2018 travel report and obligatory picks uh, from the NetBSD blog. And um, you can see a picture here from the people who were there. So, this is uh, posted by Maya Rashish. Uh, this was my first B- big BSD conference. Oh, wow. Here we go. Uh, we also planned... Plant might be a big word here. Uh, thought about doing a Dev Summit on Friday. Since the people who were in charge of that had a chance change of plans, uh, I was sure I'd go. It, it would go horribly wrong. Okay, the day before the Dev Summit, uh, and still in the wrong country, I mentioned the hours and venue of the wiki or on the wiki and booked a reservation for a restaurant. It turns out that everything was totally fine. And since the Dev Summit was at the conference venue that was uh, having tutorials that day, they even had signs pointing at the room we were given. So thanks, EuroBeastiecon conference organizers, for that. Excellent. Not not just for that, but yeah, uh, it helps for people find. Yeah. Uh, at the Dev Summit, we, we spent some time hacking. A few people came with travel laptops without access to anything, like uh, Riastrat, so I gave him access to my own laptop. This didn't hold very long, and I kind of forgot about it, but for a few moments, he had access to a NetBSD source tree and an H-thread 16-gigabyte RAM machine with which to build things. And we had a short introduction, and I suggested we take some pictures. So here's the one we got. This is the one you see. And a few people were concerned about privacy, so they're not pictured, so they're behind the camera, I imagine. And we had a small team to hold the camera. And uh, so at the actual conference days, I stayed at the speaker hotel with the other speakers. Uh, I've attempted to make conversation with some visibly FreeBSD slash OpenBSD people, but didn't have plans to talk about anything. So there was a lot of just following people silently. That's okay. I mean, that's not a necessity, but... It can definitely be a bit tough uh, your Mm -hmm. very first time. Uh, It feels weird to just walk up to people. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Just do it. It gets better. Yeah, it get better over the the more often you use it, and the more often they see you, they recognize yeah, your face. I, I got lucky, and and one of the people I decided to follow around on my third conference was uh, Michael Dexter, and then suddenly, oh, I oh yeah, conversations. That you're covered. <laughs> uh, so sometimes it's just a matter of finding the right person. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, that's why. I always try to help people, right? It's, uh, I, I'm somebody that most of the people that come to the conference for the first time are likely to have seen before. Uh, yeah. And maybe feel slightly more comfortable coming up and talking to. Yeah. So I try to take that responsibility uh, seriously. Carry it, yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, continuing with the report here, uh, perhaps for the next conference, I'll prepare a list of questions to random BSD people and then very obviously grab a piece of paper and ask, what was... Uh, read a bit from it and say your latest kernel panic I, i'm sure it'll be a great conversation starter yeah one uh, thing that this I, week that would uh that would be a long conversation with me <laughs> yeah uh, i guess it's uh, yeah one very Although uh, i've been the, invoking the panics on purpose so i don't know if that counts <laughs> or more generally if, it, if it's not about panics all the time what what's what you've been working on recently that's mm-hmm. that gets people talking 
because it pretty much fits everyone, whether it's source tree, doc tree, port tree, everyone pretty much has something to, to tell. So at the conference itself, uh, it was pretty cool to have folks like Kirk McCusick give first-person accounts of some past events, like uh, Kirk gave a talk about governance of FreeBSD, or the second keynote by Ron Brersma. That keynote own- was great. I don't know mm-hmm. how they found that guy, but uh, I'm very, very glad they did. Mm-hmm. So my own talk was hastily prepared. It was difficult to bring the topic together in a coherent talk. Nevertheless, I managed to talk about stuff for a while, uh, 40 minutes. uh, And though usually I skip over so many details that I have trouble putting together a sufficiently long talk. I mentioned some of my coolest bugs to solve. I should probably make a separate article about some. Yes. Uh, Yeah, sure. Why not? A few people asked for the slides after the talk. So I guess uh, it wasn't totally incoherent. And it was really fun to meet some of my favorite NetBSD people. I got to show off my now fairly well-working laptop. It took a lot of work to uh, by all of us to get that. Okay. And after the conference, I came back with a conference cold. Uh, here we go. Yeah. And it took a few days to recover from. Hopefully, I didn't infect too many people on the way back. That's the conference lag sometimes setting in. Yeah. yeah I managed to not get that uh, from Euro this year. I know by the end of Euro last year in Paris, uh, when we were walking back to somewhere or something it was right. definitely a uh I'm, I'm stopping at this pharmacy and getting something because my sore throat is getting to me <laughs> yeah the eurobsd con is, is usually during the time when the weather changes from summer to like uh, autumn and i don't think it was cool really any of the days we were in paris mm, yeah but uh, there's yeah or it's just it definitely wasn't uh, cool any of the days far. we were in, in romania <laughs> yeah that's true um, yeah, maybe it's just a uh, yeah. Well, you you just, catch something. There's you take, a lot of people around. The, the very minor bugs from all over the world and mash them together <laughs> in one big room. It's a super uh, bug. Yeah, with a people bunch of people who are immunocompromised from all the traveling and all the not sleeping. Uh, yeah, that comes if, together. If I got as that. much sleep uh, at a conference as I got at home, then I probably wouldn't ever get sick. But I never <laughs> do. So. Yeah. And it's better to catch it afterwards than during or at the beginning of a conference. Otherwise, you're just... So, you know, oh, I'm going to spend 14 days in in Tokyo and get sick on the third to last day or second to last day, something like that. And don't recover quickly enough. Wake up the morning of my talk and uh, barely able to talk or breathe. Uh, And it's like, I'm going home soon, but yeah, luckily, (laughs) VC3000 and a lot of willpower and I made it through my talk and then... Uh, I slept the entire 13-hour flight home. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's... Uh, Mostly thanks to the medicine we managed to sign language out of the Japanese pharmacy on the way home. Hmm. Remember when we ended up in the wrong wrong airport terminal? Oh, yeah, the international terminal is Well, no, we ended up in Terminal 1 instead of Terminal I. Yeah, I I thought it would be the same. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I had the bright idea of getting the cold medicine while we were in the Japanese-only terminal, where most people didn't speak English. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the trick here to find the, where the locals buy their pharmacy or yes. buy the, um, their medicine. <laughs> they worked out well. Because um, even when we got to the international terminal, I looked around a bit, but I didn't really see any better medicines. <laughs> But yeah, so uh, thanks for writing that up and hopefully see you at a future BSD conference uh, because Mm -hmm. I think that the experience was good enough and uh, the talk was well received. So uh, on to the next one. 
Yeah. So next we have uh, a blog post of somebody who tried out GhostBSD on real hardware. Uh, so you might have heard about FreeBSD, which is ultimately uh, a derive or derived from Unix back in the original days. Uh, it is not Linux, even though it is similar in many ways, because Linux was designed uh, basically to be a free version of Unix, uh, and then FreeBSD was just Unix when it became free. <laughs> um, <clears throat> seeing is believing. So check out the videos of uh, my install and some of the apps that I was running as well. I think that's the one that uh, confuses many people: is that in the end, the apps. Uh, that you run on Linux are not Linux. They are those apps. And most of those apps will run on FreeBSD. Uh, and so the Linux-specific bits are actually not that much of the operating system when it comes down to it. Uh, if you consider you know, something like Ubuntu is the whole operating system with all the things they bundle together, uh, mm. you can have almost all of that except for the Linux part. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so you might have heard uh, of FreeBSD. Anyway, so, uh, so let's give it a try on an old Lenovo T410. Um, you can download the latest version from ghostbsd.org and create a bootable USB stick. Um, turns out that was surprisingly difficult as Rufus did not work uh, for and created a corrupted drive. I had to uh, follow this procedure under Windows using, uh, I guess, uh, the Win32 disk imager, which I'm very familiar with. I use it all the time. Um <laughs> So they downloaded the 2.5 gig ISO, renamed it to image, and burned it to the, the USB stick. Uh, yeah. uh, you'll be able to start a live session and use the onboard install uh, to get GhostBSD onto the machine. Easy uh, enough, yeah. There's a full package a distro, and it's based on FreeBSD and comes with Mate or XFCE. You can see what it looks like here. So you say, uh, let's give it a try. And they poke around on it. Uh, they say, I did encounter some bugs or quirks along the way. The installer failed the first time for some unknown reason, uh, but worked the second time. That's odd. Uh, the first boot stopped uh, when initializing the USB 3 ports. Uh, the T410 does not actually have USB 3 ports. <laughs> uh, but I could use the exit command uh, line magic to continue. Uh, the second boot worked fine. Audio was only available through the headphones, not the speakers, but that could be partially be fixed, uh, again, using the sysctl to tell it which sound device to use. Uh, lots of installed apps did not show up uh, in the start menu at first and, you know, had to poke those. Uh, overall, it's uh, they like it better than TrueOS because uh, drivers did work better. Uh, I find that odd because GhostBSD is usually for the behind. Actually, if it's a new enough version of GhostBSD, it'll actually be based on TrueOS. And so <laughs> that'll be really interesting <laughs> if you, you find it better. Where's the ancestry um, here? But uh, this upside is it's free and open source because it's uh, FreeBSD and packages. Uh, they use Mate or XFCE, uh, and they like that. And the drivers uh, for their laptop all worked with the LAN, Wi-Fi, video, 2D, 3D, audio, etc. Of course, with a, a T410, uh, that's pretty likely i think uh, even on my t or my x270 which is the same hardware as a t470 um i think the sd card reader is the only thing that doesn't work uh, and ghost psd still offers ufs in addition to zfs whereas TrueOS is zfs only okay. that's cool anyway they also have a youtube channel if you want to check out more videos of them playing with ghost psd mm-hmm 
No, it's actually, a, they, this appears to be a series of blog posts, and they also have a Dragonfly BSD on real hardware. And they tried uh, TrueOS as well. So if you're interested in seeing what they thought of Dragonfly BSD, check out the link at the bottom of the article. Time for Beastie Bits this week. Uh, we have a big list this week, um, starting with EuroBSDCon 2018 and NetBSD Sanitizers. So this is over at the NetBSD blog by Kamil Ritarovsky, uh, writing, I presented the state of NetBSD sanitizers during EuroBSDCon 2018 held in Bucharest, Romania. Uh, I gave two talks, one covered userland sanitizers and the other one kernel sanitizers. Unfortunately, video recordings from the conference are not available uh, because they didn't do any, but I've uploaded my slides online, so there are links to both um, slide decks. And mm -hmm. uh, besides participating in the conference and preparing for the travel and talks, I've been researching the Lib Unwind port to NetBSD and further integration of Lua. Uh, the Lib Unwind port from the non-GNU project has been approaching to passing 22 out of 33 tests, and the current blocker is the lack of signal trampoline handling or annotation. A signal trampoline is a special libc function that's registered into the kernel and that is used as a helper routine to install and use signal handlers. So backtracing the function call stack is not trivial. We need to either annotate the assembly code in trampoline with dwarf nodes or handle it differently inside an unwinder. Yep. So you anyway, if you want to know more about the sanitizers or get the slides uh, from those talks, they're there on the blog. Yep. Next up on the OpenBSD journal, we have a new Mandoc feature. Uh, when you uh, set the output type to HTML, there's now support for creating a table of contents. Ooh, nice. Uh, so during EuroBSDCon in Bucharest, Adam... Kaliz uh, suggested to add a table of contents to the top of the HTML output for Mandoc, and I just implemented and committed that work. Uh, it is only done when both of the following conditions are true. You've explicitly asked for HTML and a table of contents, and the page in question has at least two non-standard sections. Uh, otherwise, the tables would be boring and pointless. Uh, so if you check out an example man page, say ifconfig, uh, you can see you get a table of contents that includes the description of what ifconfig is, but also specific sections on bridge, carp, wireless, uh, IPv6, interface groups, uh, pflow, pfsync, pppoe, switch, trunk, tunnel, VLAN, etc., etc. That is useful. We need to uh, get that set up for the website versions we generate uh, on FreeBSD. Mm -hmm. on the man.freebsd.org. Yeah, that way people can jump through the section they are looking for, especially if it's a big man page. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah, I, I spend a lot of work on the uh, netstat man page to make it more readable. And a table of contents like that would help a lot. Mm -hmm. mm. Okay, very nice work. And uh, there's more about EuroBSDCon 2018 on Sevan's Geekland blog. Uh, he has a long write-up and nice pictures from the uh, conference and, uh, you know, describing how he uh, picked up uh, Graf the BSD goat uh, at the last minute because the original uh, goat herder couldn't take it because uh, it was uh, not available or not, couldn't go. And um, then Sevan took it uh, under his wing to bring it to Romania. So 
that's nice. And his experiences at the conference, uh, you can write or not, not write, read about it in his uh, long blog post here. So you that's can write about a it nice... as much as you want as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, send him a little bit of a commentary if you liked it. That's a good uh, way of saying thanks. Uh, yeah, it's a nice write-up and you can get a different impression about how the conference uh, was for him. Yeah, uh, including meeting with the NetBSD release engineer and talking about uh, what was coming up for the next version of NetBSD, which is what Savant's presentation was about. And on Thursday, he also attended the uh, FreeBSD Developer Summit. Uh, he said for the flexibility of being able to use any computer without having to uh, spread keys everywhere and save you. Uh, he uses a YubiKey, um, but he was also uh, talking a bit about getting that working, including the pin retry counter and so on then on friday uh he went to the netbsd developer summit and talked a bit about zen and some other stuff uh and their drm update and then the conference he went to various talks uh, he also saw this talk about lua from eurobsdcon 2014 yeah there's a reference because of mm -hmm. ongoing work of uh and then uh, he's got some pictures uh, from that keynote that I, I liked. Uh, he says, the actual pieces of the government peddled the idea of using Unix for national security. And so on, here's the Internet Protocol Transition Workbook, uh, which is basically how they switched from whatever they had before to IPv4. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a little bit of piece of history. Yep, and he had uh, green books and red books and orange books and so on. <laughs> All the colors. Yeah, well worth the read. And, uh, yeah. It covers very... a wide range of topics, and it's definitely worth reading. Uh, mm. uh, yeah, next up we have the uh, Polish BSD user group. Uh, so, so this isn't that's... their website. This is Marius talking about how it became... Yeah thing mm -hmm. so yeah he's writing about um how they started with that and you know organization parts and uh yeah pretty so much in a couple of days will be uh the next meeting of the vsd uh, sorry the polish vsd user group it's already our sixth meeting which means that the group has been running for almost half a year uh the next meeting will be a special one uh because we will be guests at the warsaw university of technology uh considering all of this i decided to summarize some of our accomplishments so originally they decided to start uh the user group to promote all bsd operating systems in poland we don't know any other group working in Poland. All of this is fired uh, from the Bay Area FreeBSD user group meetings that he had had the chance to attend when he was visiting uh, California. After a short talk with my colleagues from Fudu Security, we decided uh, to give it a try and organize their first meeting. Before we started, we figured out some of the basic details, and we started from a few assumptions about uh, whom would show up and how the group would work. The first assumption is that we didn't want uh, to do conferences, so our meetings would not be f uh, focused on presentations, but more about the networking and solving user problems and, and just growing the community. Uh, yes, uh, we assumed that it would be nice if people would come to the meetings with some BSD-related problems and someone would be able to help them. This is why we decided that presentations should not be longer than 15 minutes uh, and only should uh, show some interesting feature or something rather than uh, going into too much technical detail. 
Um, this is another thing uh, which we need to figure out was uh, who would attend. Uh, you know, on the one hand, we'd uh, like to bring new users to the BSC community, uh, but we'd also like to get all the experts. And so we need interesting enough stuff to get the experts, but accessible enough stuff to get the new people. Uh, so that's why I decided to have uh, basically uh, an easy talk and a technical talk uh, with each meeting. Uh, the first one for people who didn't have, uh, assuming no experience with BSD, and then another one uh, to keep more the, the expert people interested. Uh, so, you know, this is what FreeBSD is, and this is how you install it kind of stuff, up to, uh, you know, more advanced users doing the talk. We discuss interesting things like, say, ZPool checkpoints and so on. And this part, uh, we assume that the advanced users would know the basics of ZFS, but would want to know how they could do more interesting things with it. Uh, the beginning users may not understand everything, but they might also get more interested and want to learn more about that topic too. Uh, so he says, I have the pleasure of working at a company that uses FreeBSD every day. Uh, because of that, uh, my company agreed to sponsor the meetings and to host them originally. And the first five of them were at their offices. Uh, and they also paid for pizza and so on. Uh, eventually, they decided to record the presentations. Uh, the part where attendees introduce themselves and the networking is not recorded, uh, as well as any presentation where the speaker doesn't want to be recorded. Um yeah, so that also wasn't an easy decision. Our goal is to network, so we want uh, would like people to show up for the meeting. Uh, so we want to, you know, not incentivize people to stay home and watch online, but at the same time, not scare people away by recording too much. <laughs> um, we also trying to minimize the effort involved in organizing the meeting, so it should stay fun and not be another job. Uh, so they use Eventbrite as a registration form. Uh, it's useful because you know how many people you need to order pizza for and uh, GitHub pages to host the website. Uh, and we have a weekly 30-minute call to discuss any ideas for the next meeting. Uh, the other thing they've done is may added a third talk that's always about something completely different uh, in order to try to just uh, keep it interesting and, and not just uh, all the kind gotcha. of the same stuff over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so they say during the last six months, they've had 16 presentations, including YubiKeys, uh, FreeBSD introductions, uh, FreeBSD at universities, uh, boot environments and checkpoints, using OpenBSD every day. Or actually, I think OpenBSD Daily is actually um, like a code reading thing, looking over some utilities code every day for 15 minutes or something. An interesting, you know, warming up your brain exercise every morning kind of thing. <laughs> uh, talks about ARM and free IPA, uh, the Zero Trust Initiative, which is commercial products where you can inspect the source code to make sure that it's auditable. But So the code is not open source. You can't take it and build something on it, but the code is there for you to inspect. Uh, it's a very interesting idea there. Uh, the, also, uh, they have a talk on CubesOS, one about how they actually streamed, uh, the company that streamed the FIFA World Cup and how they did that, uh, and interesting things like that. And so far, they've had one uh, meeting in English because George Noble Neal was presenting about D-Trace. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, I remember they were talking about that. So, yeah, very cool. And you can see the, the evolution of a, of a user group, how it evolves and how many people, that it becomes a regular thing and that people are attending it and the, the format they, they chose. Yeah. Uh, so thanks very much to Marius for putting all this together. Uh, I know that some other people that have considered starting a user group would find 
the lessons you've learned so far to be very useful uh, and, you know, just seeing that it's worked for other people uh, helps. And then also knowing, uh, you know, what pitfalls to avoid and so on. Mm-hmm. Okay, next up, uh, there's the question, what year is this? Or what year is it? Uh, this is over at, so this is a uh, podcast, an audio podcast, So this is uh, Garbage.fm with uh, Brendan Mercer and Joshua Stein. It's, uh, after we interviewed Brendan Mercer on this podcast, suddenly he decided to start his own podcast. Ah, <laughs> so see, what influence is, uh, we have. It is an OpenBSD <laughs> focused podcast. Okay, very nice. So ah. Check it out and Topics on this one include using 1Password, uh, using HashiCorp Vault uh, on OpenBSD, using 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi and doing channel selection on OpenBSD, uh, and running OpenBSD on a 2017 MacBook. Mm-hmm. Cool. So there's a wide variety of uh, topics. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, next up we have the demo at 50. If I read that correctly, yeah. Yep, so this uh, year marks the 50th anniversary of Doug Engelbert's groundbreaking 1968 demo, also known as the mother of all demos. <laughs> it was there at the uh, 1968 Fall Joint Computer Conference that Doug and his team at SRI first presented their seminal work on personal and collaborative computing in the world. Uh, this was the debut of the mouse, the concept of windows, uh, of hypermedia, of file sharing, teleconferencing, and much, much more. Ah, things we take for granted nowadays. Yeah. Okay. Oh, speaking of windows, here's the news of the week. Microsoft ports D-Trace from FreeBSD to Windows 10. Hold on, somehow it's uh, lost my place in this video. <laughs> ah. But yes, uh, so this video includes uh, a live demo of debugging an application using D-Trace on Windows 10. Windows and yeah. D-Trace ported yes. from FreeBSD. Mind you, yes, this particularly is the... Like the uh, I think they have a diagram right here. You can see uh, yes. Lumos invented D-Trace, and then it was ported to FreeBSD, and then from there it was ported to Mac, and maybe some fixes came back, and they've since now ported it to Windows. And D-Trace is also ported to NetBSD and Linux uh, from Lumos. Ah, yes. So now you can find out what all these crazy blue screens of death were about, or what um, caused them. <laughs> much more, I think, about tracing applications, but yes. Yeah, well... At least there's well, some debuggability happening now in, in, on Windows. Yes, better no, than like we had you, before. you can't. It's a blue screen is much like a panic. Uh, you can't detrace after it's panicked. Yeah, sure, but yeah, for for all these crashes and all these things that happen on Windows, yeah. and you have no idea where they're coming from. You have well, at in least. I think in their example, they showed uh, a performance regression they were seeing and how they solved it. Uh, in particular. Um, it turned out that one of the two sides of the pipe they were reading, they were doing over the network version instead of the local-only version, uh, and it made it much slower than it needed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but anyway, D-Trace is flexible. Uh, the important too. thing here, if you look at it, is the D-Trace code is exactly the same. So your D-scripts are exactly the same, other than the fact that you know the system call names start with the letters NT. 
okay, and have that... they're all camel case. So it's like camel case NT process create instead of you know fork or whatever. Mm. But you can carry over your your scripts and then just yes. make a couple uh, of adjustments. All all the concepts you already know from Dtrace just apply to Windows. The one liners. Uh, yeah. I don't know when you'll be able to get your hands on this. I mm. bet the the guy porting ZFS to Windows would find this extremely helpful. If people provide feedback and uh, yeah, moral support of in any way, then that certainly uh, keeps people going to do the final bits of porting. Yeah, well, that one's uh, official port done by Microsoft, though. Oh, excellent! Much better than yeah, what I anticipated even. No, this is a, a presentation with Microsoft people on the Microsoft stage at the Microsoft conference. Mm -hmm. Okay, who would have thought uh, way back when? Uh, can't really develop that one that's now made its way that's, into Windows. Literally every OS would have it, right? Linux, BSDs, uh, Mac, Mac, Mac OS. And uh, universal debugging tool. Yeah. Start learning now. Um, <laughs> next up is uh, OpenBSD joins Twitter. So there is the OpenBSD channel on twitter.com. And you can see the little banner here from one of the CDs and a couple of people here. There's also Roger Moore there, I, I see. And uh, a couple of tweets have happened already and over 3,000 followers already. So if you're interested in the latest developments and uh, chitter-chatter uh, on OpenBSD, uh, check out that channel or follow it even, like I do. Yep. Okay, but there's more Beastie Bits. We have NetBSD Curses Rip Offline Improvements. Is that one word or is it Rip Offline? It yeah. seems like it. <laughs> okay, so it's uh, rather short. Uh, it says, I implemented Rip Offline in NetBSD and it shipped in Dash 8, so NetBSD 8. Um, it now transpires there were a few problems with the implementation, mainly in regards to screen resizing, which is an extension to POSIX, but supported by NCurses and PD curses. And many improvements have been made with regards to compatibility with NetBSD and the others, but there are the following caveats. So NetBSD will only resize a standard cursor, cursor and vert cursor windows like PD curses. Um, it will also clear the window when resized. And NetBSD will resize and reposition the ripped off lines, like end curses. And it will not change the lines when rip off line is called and may offset the standard cursor to, or the standard screen actually, to its relative position on the screen. This means that portable applications uh, should check get beg XY and get max XY uh, for the size and location of standard screen. The expectation is that the client will redraw all windows, including ripped off windows on key underscore resize events. And it's also expected that the client will resize any other windows and it has a cleaner uh, idea of where things should be on the screen. So it's proportion rather than cursor's guesstimation. Now, the more colorful roguelike game Ascent into the Depths of Beyond now works on NetBSD with a minor patch. Hey, uh -huh. excellent. Now we get the motivation at the very end. <laughs> yeah, people read game, and then it's like, ah, I, uh, I can now. I now understand what you're doing. <laughs> what, what's why this is important? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next up, we have a uh, a FreeBSD community proposal to remove some very old ten one hundred Ethernet drivers from FreeBSD uh, thirteen. So they'll still be there in twelve, but they'll be removed in thirteen, um, and the list. Uh, has 
changed a bit over time as we found ones that people are still using, uh, but common ones like uh, FXP, the older Intel 100 megabit NIC, uh, because it's used in a lot of emulations. I think DC is also used in QMU um, and things like VR and RE uh, and so on that are very common across motherboards uh, are staying. So we're keeping those. Uh, but some of the cards that like nobody has had in a working machine in 10 years, uh, we'd like to get rid of so that as we extend the way we build Ethernet drivers to support, you know, 100 gigabit drivers, we're not held back by the 100 megabit drivers. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's it's time to deprecate some of the older stuff and uh, make way for other stuff that so that it's not starting to grow out of proportions the system. Because also all these old drivers then need to be maintained if something comes up and uh, the less drivers we have and if there's no hardware around anymore or unlikely, then well, yes, that's why the other keep problem those? Is, yeah. While we can probably make some of these drivers work under the new system, there's no way to test them when these this hardware hasn't been made in more than 10 years mm. or 20 years in some of the cases. Yeah. And there's a note also that USB devices have been excluded from consideration in this round. So right. no USB worries is here. is all going to say. Uh, yeah. And basically any cards where like at least five different people are using them are probably fine. It's just ones where nobody else has this. <laughs> Is this still around? Is this, yeah. Has anyone uh, had a system with that driver or that hardware? Yeah. yeah. So good to have. And people are discussing those FCPs. So it's good to see that we are now uh, starting with that and see the, the benefits of those. Uh, next is announcing the package source 2018 quarter three release. So over uh, the NetBSD uh, tech package mailing list, um, the package source developers are proud to announce the 60th quarterly release of package source cross-platform packaging system. Package source is available with more than 22,000 packages running on 23 separate platforms, and you can find more information on packagesource.org. Uh, in total, 161 packages were added, 25 packages were removed, and 1,321 packages uh, were updated um, to 996 unique packages. Um, that Those were processed since the quarter two, so the latest uh, release, or the, the, the before that one. Uh, including popular software um, versions, Asterisk, Bind, Firefox 62, uh, Lua, Go, MySQL, Nextcloud, Postgres, uh, Vim, SQLite, Rust, Ruby. There's pretty much, Perl, uh, PHP, etc. All the usual mm, stuff. Good selection of uh, of stuff people are using. And we say goodbye to Asterisk uh, 1.9 as well as Bind 9.913 patch 11. And there are also changes to the package source infrastructure. The Go packages are now versioned. So instead of lang slash go, there is a lang go 19, lang go 110, uh, and one and go 1.1.1. One Depending on the OS, an appropriate version is chosen as the default, and they can be installed simultaneously yep. in case you're switching back and forth. So next up, nice. we have installing a Debian VM using OpenBSD VMD without using QMU or needing a Debian system. Um, so this, you basically create a, a basic uh, Debian VM config uh, on 
VMD, and then to compare the installation media, you can actually download an existing hard drive image uh, for Debian, uh, and uh, unzip the initRD, um, extract it, uh, play with it a bit, <laughs> uh, update it, and uh, package it up, and then you can uh, make it work. So it's all the instructions on uh, configuring this, so including uh, fixing the serial console uh, and that, and modifying the stock already made images, and then being able to just start it uh, in VMCTL. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, that's a nice way of uh, starting that. Yeah. Uh, with VMD getting QCAV support, uh, I'm guessing in the future you won't even have to do this much. You'll literally just grab the existing QCAV image and start it. Mm, that's, uh, yeah, pre well, you, might end up, you might still have to do the change for the serial console, but that's relatively oh. minor. Even you think yeah. Yeah, so there's uh, support happening, and uh, hopefully it propagates to other hypervisors. Um, we also found a BSD authentication module for duress passwords, also by Joshua Steen. So uh, there's a GitHub page here. Uh, the description reads, Login duress is a BSD authentication module providing duress functionality upon authentication. The concept is modeled after the PAM duress module for PAM. It essentially adds per-user backdoor password, which, when entered instead of the normal user password, will also execute a particular command as that user. So it could be anything. Uh, installation is quite easy. Just download the source, make install, and then you create a duress database at etc slash duress in the format of user colon encrypted password colon and then the duress command that you want to execute. Yeah, so kind of similar to the master password file, but with fewer fields. Mm -hmm. And then you uh, encrypt the password, of course, and then you do a little bit of a change well, own, change mod dance. It's not really encryption, yeah. but anyway. Yeah, so that it's uh, not in clear text. And so, uh, then... In the example they have here, if you log in as JCS and enter not your real password, but your duress password, it'll turn the machine off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, could be anything. Format a disk or send a help message or I don't know. Start a could fake be. shell that looks like it is logged in but actually doesn't do anything or whatever you want to do. Yeah. Yeah, in case uh, that's needed, uh, it's quick and easy to set up. And uh, yeah, hopefully it, it, it will never be needed. And last but not least, we have disk price slash performance analysis uh, over yep. so on... So this is uh, our friend Mario Saborski pointing to uh, an updated version of this post over on the FreeNAS forums uh, where they have a large selection of models of hard drive uh, and basically looking at the best uh, dollars per gigabyte of storage uh, multiplied by performance or something. Oh yeah, and graphs also. Oh, cool! This is uh, comprehensive. Well worth digging deeper into. Uh, yeah, so, like looking at it uh, right now, uh, three and a half inch NAS drives average cost by size uh, per year. We can see that uh, your uh, nine point nine terabyte drive, your nine hundred and some odd uh, gigabyte drive, 
uh, is this price. And then as the different sizing, you see that there's this weird spike at five terabytes. It's kind of a slightly odd size. Uh, but, you know, you can get four or six for less per gigabyte. Mm, yeah. And you can, uh, of course, order by the type, the form factor, the size, or uh, performance things like uh, rotations per minute. Yeah, so you can see that on your four terabyte drives, uh, the slower drives are slightly cheaper per gigabyte. Mm. Oh, wow, this is pretty comprehensive in one big yeah. Excel spreadsheet. Very nice, good work. And I guess that brings us yeah, into our feedback and questions section. Um, we're running a little bit low on questions, so don't forget to send them uh, or anything that you always wanted to know or ask us or have a problem with. Uh, send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then we'll have more content for this section and people get help this way, either from us or from someone else who knows the answer better than we do. So first up is... Uh, user called DJ with a zombie ZFS question starts with dear Alan Benedict and JT and TJ and Chris if you are out there they are they are um, as a stalwart BSD user for roughly 16 years and avid BSD now listener since episode one I wish to thank you profusely for five and more years of what is by far one of the most entertaining informative and useful multimedia production on the internet and beyond oh wow Thanks, that's uh, yeah. high praise high here. Praise. Please keep up the good work. Yeah, we're, we're, we're I mean, five years and, and counting, we'll, we're here. Um, thanks for all that good feedback. So going forward, I hope to be better at contributing comments and questions to the show. Yeah, we already did. Uh, believe it or not, there have been many times when I had wanted to write in to ask something or add something, but always get too busy. Also, someone else in your astute audience will often ask or comment the same thing. Yeah, see, that's why we have this community. Um, what I would like to have written in, so when I get really lazy about writing uh, in myself, c'est la vie en BSD. Uh, yeah, uh, like I can understand, especially a lot of people listen during a commute and might not be in a position to be able to send an email right when they're thinking about it. Mm. Yeah. So, unfortunately, I'm writing now uh, is because of an infuriatingly slow software update in a separate embedded project and a strange problem with ZFS on FreeBSD. No mission-critical data at risk here, but I'm just curious about some unusual behavior from a zpool command or two. This was a fairly old pool, but it was working just fine until seven weeks ago. Questions follow near the end. So, here's the... Uh, zpool status output. So, we see there is um, well, one or more devices... In particular, he errors. tried to do a scrub and then did zpool status-v to list uh, any files that were corrupted. And you see that status is one or more devices has experienced an error resulting in data corruptions and applications may be affected. In particular, looks like one of his disks has uh, broken down and gone away and the other one has checksum errors, uh, which has resulted in some reads actually failing. Yeah. Because there were no good copies of the data available. Uh not good. See, and that's uh, all from the zpool status command. In particular, instead of listing the files, it is hung. Uh, and it looks like uh, he has the control T from when he first did it after it had spent 99 seconds and not done anything. And now after I guess, seven weeks, it's been uh, running for 4.2 million seconds and hasn't done anything. Mm. 
Yeah, so this has uh, this is hanging so here. It's, it's basically waiting for an IO to finish, and I think that IO has is never going to finish. Um, yeah. In particular, there's the property fail mode on the pool, uh, which decides whether when something like this goes wrong, if it should wait and hope it gets better, or if it should panic. Um, and so it's just sitting there. Um, you might be able to help if uh, running another zpool status without the dash v and seeing what the status of the pool actually is. Uh, it's likely that it would like to offline ADA2, but it's the only disk, so it doesn't want to do that. Uh, mm. If you can get the other mirrored disk back, if it's actually around somewhere, zpool onlining that would help a lot. Uh, otherwise, a zpool clear might make it progress. Mm. Uh, otherwise, you might need to just reboot, uh, probably forcefully, because a, a, a safe shutdown won't this will, yeah. because it's waiting for the zpool command. Would it help uh, to anyway, add a third drive to it, to the mirror? Uh, a good that doesn't drive? work if it won't be able to complete because he's ah, right. got yeah. uh, files that are broken because neither copy is available. Yeah, there's no yeah good way of... Yeah, so uh, uh, yeah, he in particular mentions that, you know, control C and kill dash nine aren't working. Mm. Yeah, it's because the process is stuck waiting for a kernel thing to finish. Uh, and so there's not much you can do there. Mm, yeah, it's uh, it's the hardware messing up the software, and yeah. yeah. So, uh, but, can no. you read starting from the as you can tell from the status, blah, Gelly, blah. Uh, from the top here, and that's all from the zpool status. After zpool status, yes. Ah, yeah, and um, so that's all uh, from zpool status. No listing of files. No, uh, the other part further down. Um, let's see. After the control T's. Skip a paragraph about kill dash nine and then the next one. Ah, yes. Uh, as you can tell from the status, the providers are Gally encrypted in a mirror pair. Uh, there are two identical spinning Rust drives. Both pass their smart tests, obey the with some occasional errors here and there. So when I last had a the pool mounted, I had written some data, then unexpectedly lost power a few hours later, and then suddenly discovered that my UPS battery was dead as a doornail. Oh, oh. After that, the Zeta controller started getting noisy, lots of log entries, nothing special. So I just shut down and connected the spinning rust to some Zeta ports on the main board, booted and tried to run the scrub. So, and at the time of starting the scrub, I had just attached uh, slash decrypted ADA2 and ADA3, but I had not yet mounted the file system. This was an old school legacy mount. My guess would be that ZFS cannot tell me which files, if any, were corrupted if I have not mounted anything yet, correct? Uh, no, it can still tell what files those would be. The problem you're likely facing is that ADA3 is not actually online and ADA2 is having a read error. Uh, so if you can zpool online ADA3, that would go a long way to likely helping out. Mm. So my main curiosity here is why the zombie process? Is there a way to terminate it gracefully and can I ignore it and mount the file system even if read-only? Um. At this point, I would recommend a reboot and then trying to import that pool with both ADA2 and ADA3 working uh, and hope for the best. Uh, you might start by mounting that uh, by mounting the pool read-only, which is not the same as mounting the file system read-only. Mm. So that's uh, zpool import dash o read-only equals on uh, and so on. 
you have to see if you can salvage that. Because yeah, this looks uh, like so a bad situation most of the data here. Is, is probably there. It's just uh, when you have a mirror and both sides are failing, uh, ZFS biases towards not breaking things, which can result in it getting in situations where there's just nothing it can do but wait and hope you fix something. <laughs> mm. Like reattaching the second drive or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's a little note here. Admittedly, this is a somewhat dated setup on a somewhat dated system. Uh, if you need more info from me, please feel free to reach out. Although I cannot guarantee a response before your next live show, please feel free to hang out on these questions. Uh, ah, yeah. Um, if you're upcoming, if we have an upcoming Halloween episode, if we do not see something, if we don't have something zombie themed yet, happy Halloween. Well, this is actually going to be the episode that airs closest to Halloween. Uh, mm -hmm. The next one will be recorded live on Halloween, but really probably won't come out until the next day. So yeah. it'll be too late for Halloween. So, uh, not on purpose, but we've basically done that. That, that yeah, that that covers it. Yeah, we're recording so, it like uh, two weeks early, so it's a little weird. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, thanks in closing um, uh, for all your hard work in producing this wonderful show. Uh, thanks, uh, and you all have my eternal undead respect and admiration. Well, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate how you how you like it, and yeah, spread the word, and uh, yeah, hopefully you get your pool back or at least the data on it. Um, and yeah, let us know how it worked out. Uh, okay, next up is Josh Joshua uh, with an ARM tier one uh, question uh, or how to approach it. Uh, goes like this: Hi there. First, a disclosure: I'm affiliated with the company Solid Run Limited, as you can see in the from address, the the email we originally got, and maybe more important, my ARM board park is sponsored by them. However, with the exception of the Solid Run wiki page, everything below is done on my free time and not paid for. Okay, so here it goes. A few episodes back, I was delighted to hear that supporting the Macchiato bin as a Tier 1 platform is a goal. I have taken some personal interest in running in FreeBSD on some of my ARM boards, which happen to be mostly by Solid Run. Sadly, I was always stopped in my tracks. After building FreeBSD from source and making a bootable microSD image, I did never figure out how to run the resulting system as a production machine. This is mostly because I could not figure out how I was supposed to build, test, and finally deploy the updates. And it appears to me that all the infrastructure relies on making ARM a Tier 1 platform. I now have two 32-bit ARM boards that can run FreeBSD thanks to the work of SemiHalf in Poland. In addition, I have integrated the bits into Crouton for building bootable SD card images for both. And now I don't know what to do for pushing things forward. I'm hesitant doing anything productive with these boards without a good update mechanism. A friend of mine has the same hesitation for her ARMS B6-based Raspberry Pi, and she wanted to put FreeBSD on it, but was put off just like myself from putting it uh, for anything serious. Uh, my Raspberry Pi is still running the Rasp... BSD image from years yeah. ago. Um, but yeah, again, you want updates at one point. Uh, maybe you know a way to raise interest here or find the right people. Please know that I'm not a FreeBSD user or see myself as part of the FreeBSD community. Not yet. Um, I spent my life on Linux and currently consider FreeBSD for two embedded use cases, namely router and NAS. Uh, things I would be willing to contribute so regularly test FreeBSD builds on my devices to help decide if, I, uh, if the set build can be published as an update, uh, offer regular SD card images built from source, and maybe other things. I really don't know what uh, would help the goal. 
Yeah. So oh, wow. the biggest problem is that the traditional update mechanism, FreeBSD update, uh, gets really, really, really slow on SD cards uh, because it's basically reading every file, uh, calculating the SHA-256, which takes a while, uh, and then <laughs> updating the file with binary diffs, uh, which is a lot of random access and so on. Um, so that's kind of a problem, and package base doesn't work yet. Uh, mm. So how to do updates gets more tricky. If you have a big enough ARM64 board where you can do ZFS, you could do something like uh, that. what I presented at EuroBSDCon using ZFS boot environments as an update mechanism. Uh, because then you would just do one big linear uh, sequential write uh, to update the operating system, basically. Uh, but again, even on SD cards, that's getting pretty... Eh. Mm. So, in the case where you're using something ARM-based and it has a real hard drive, maybe that could work. Um, so, things like the, um, the OverDrive 1000 and so on. So, I don't know if if we'll ever see FreeBSD update for ARM, um, just because so many of the devices really can't do it. And we'd really like to have, you know, even for AMD64, we would like to replace FreeBSD update, but we don't really have something yet. Uh it does seem like we need to hurry up and get something soon because we yep. can't wait forever. And more people are using our ARM or embedded builds in general. So isn't there an embedded mailing list on where people discuss these things? Because I think yeah, he has a couple just, of interesting ports. There's a solution handy. Right, but at least he has interesting hardware available that might be uh, right, well, interesting I, I, to I don't developers. think we have a lack of hardware available. It's mostly... Uh, mm. Although people willing to test like he is are very useful, and yes, he should talk to the the mailing list. But uh, I think more is a, a meta thing for higher up in the project. We do need to figure out an update mechanism that makes sense for these embedded boards because yeah. not having one is not an option. Mm. I mean, cross compiling could be a thing, but it's still sure, so. Yes, up. you can cross compile it, but how do you actually update the board without, mm. say, losing your home directory? Yeah, all that uh, right, stuff you, you have on write there. Write a new SD card image to it because then you don't have. You've mm. basically just reformatted the device rather than upgrading it. Yeah, it's uh, it's not a drop-in replacement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, if someone else has uh, a mechanism figured out or knows a good solution, then reach out to us and uh, we'll connect uh, the people. Okay, and last but not least for this week is a question about 5 gigahertz. That's just one line that has reached us. When will BSD support 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi networks? Um, well, uh, in the garbage.fm episode about OpenBSD, there's talking about it somehow. Um, I believe one or two or maybe three of the uh, wireless drivers in FreeBSD support 5 gigahertz. I'm pretty sure i've had my iwn connect on five gigahertz before although i'm not 100 sure uh i don't know wireless is not really my thing uh mm. hopefully bjorn is going to work on wi-fi and then we'll have wi-fi <laughs> yeah and and for that spectrum uh um, so hopefully wi-fi six <laughs> the, the naming there they're yeah. calling ac now right it's yeah less less letters more numbers um yeah hopefully well, that will when get they skip more. letters when I, like when it went a b c or whatever that'd be fine but it went a b g n a c it's like so which alphabet is that more sense there. <laughs> yeah yeah uh, we have no um 
maybe some of the man page lists the five gigahertz support. So you have right. to look uh, at individual drivers. A lot of it is missing, and it needs mm. to be done. Uh, and you know, probably the best way to do that is make a donation to the FreeBSD Foundation and explicitly in the comments mention five gigahertz Wi-Fi support. And that then, you need it, and yeah, and then that should be sponsored. They'll uh, fund the work to get it done. Mm. It's been a bit of a difficult job finding people who have the right skills to be able to do the work. Uh, there are not that many of them in the world. And Wi-Fi is popular, so Wi-Fi developers tend to get hired to do things. Mm. And then don't have time for uh, open source work anymore. Yeah. But or, yeah, or, in general... You know, they're doing open source work on something else for somebody who's paying them. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's what it is, and uh, but I think uh, it's the, as more devices uh, support that, the more need there will be, and someone will sit down and make that happen. Okay, that pretty much wraps up our show. Again, if you find something on the internet that's BSD worthy on uh, on the show, or if you are uh, having a question for us, then send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv, and we'll cover it in a future episode. <laughs>